Welcome to this edition of the Gateway Podcast. For more information about our faith community, feel free to visit gatewaychurch.org.nz. Thanks for tuning in and enjoy this message. Hi Gateway, welcome to our live stream in this the lockdown season of the COVID-19 crisis. We're so glad that you could join us from wherever you are. Um, we want to extend a warm welcome. Um, if you've been following social media, you'll know that there have, in the midst of the trauma, been some hilarious things that we have all laughed at. And uh, I marvel at people's creativity and humour, even in the midst of difficult circumstances. The other day, Karen and I were actually um, doing a, a FaceTime with our grandkids. And as is wont sometimes among grandkids, things all went wrong. The two boys were fighting with one another. Um, the smallest among them banged his head and was crying out loud. And our 11-year-old granddaughter poked her head around the corner of the camera and very quietly said, Help me! To which we were great, with which we were greatly amused, and we offered to send her an Uber taxi um, and, and violate the uh, lockdown laws to rescue her. I'm sure you've all had moments of humour in the midst of it all, and I'm so glad that you can maintain your sense of humour. I want to do a couple of messages today around the title of, If I Were God, I Would. I'm sure many of you have been in conversations where someone was pontificating about something that was happening in the world and then suggested that if they were God, they would do things quite differently. And... I was thinking about that in the light of the COVID-19 crisis and decided I would do a couple of messages around that theme. The motivation came from several sources, a book that I'd read and the title inspired me. Secondly, uh, I was due to do an apologetics conference in the middle of this year and the, and the subject that I'd been assigned or had chosen to do really lent itself to the whole idea of um, if I were God, I would definitely do some things differently. Then, of course, the crisis itself that has gripped the world over the last few months. The COVID-19 crisis has prompted enormous questions in the minds of so many people. Where is God in all of this? Why does he allow so much pain and suffering and death? If I were God, I'd put a stop to that. So why doesn't he? Where is God in a coronavirus world? Is he powerless? Is he just not interested? Or is he plain just not there? The problem of pain and suffering and evil in our world is an agonizing and baffling problem for both believers and unbelievers alike. I suspect it's actually the most potent argument against the existence of a Christian God. It's actually been called the rock of atheism. Its presence in the world threatens the intellectual viability of Christian theology as well as the personal viability of Christian faith. I suspect it's the number one reason that people turn away from God or perhaps refuse to come to him in the first place. Doubts in our minds seem to grow proportionately with the pain that's in our heart or in our body. I remember talking to a man whose business had unexpectedly collapsed and who had lost his dreams in the rubble of its disintegration. He'd been living up to that point without thought or reference to God. But once it happened, he said to me, Don, how could God let this happen? And in an instance, he went from indifference toward God to anger toward him. John Stott commented, the fact of suffering undoubtedly constitutes the greatest single challenge to the Christian faith. 
The reason is that the presence of evil and suffering and pain in the world can't be easily reconciled with the existence of an all-loving and all-powerful God. And numerous well-known atheists, including J.L. Mackey and John Stuart Mill, have addressed their objections in the form of what we call a syllogism. And it goes something like this. Assumption 1. An all-powerful God would be able to end suffering and COVID-19. Assumption 2. An all-loving, holy, good God would want to end suffering and COVID-19. Fact. Suffering and COVID-19 exist. Conclusion. An all-powerful, all-loving, holy, good God does not exist. Now, this syllogism, syllogism and variations of it are referred to as the logical problem of evil. The argument has popular appeal and at first glance seems to have a ring of truth to it, but it's far from the knockdown argument against God's existence that some people claim. In terms of sheer logic, it isn't successful, and in academic philosophical circles it's regarded as having been successfully refuted. Dr. Alfin Plantinga, a professor of philosophy at Notre Dame University, is probably the latest and possibly the most successful to have debunked that syllogism. Now, we don't have the time, and I'm sure most of us don't have the interest to explore why it logically isn't true, but very simply, the conclusion that God doesn't exist is by no means a logical deduction from the phenomena of suffering. The existence of suffering could only be used as evidence against God if it could be proved that an all-loving God doesn't have reasons for it to continue, and that cannot be categorically proved, and therefore the logical force of the argument dissolves. Now, quick to say, the emotional force, of course, remains, but that's an entirely different issue, one that hopefully we will come to later in the piece. Ironically, that syllogism could be restated to promote entirely different, though equally reasonable, conclusions. For example, assumption one, an all-powerful God exists. Assumption two, an all-loving God exists. Fact, suffering exists. Conclusion, God must have loving reasons which he's able to achieve for permitting suffering. Now, of course, that isn't a proof for God's existence, as the first syllogism isn't a proof for God's non-existence. It, it seems that the issue isn't about strong logic, but is much more about the assumptions that we bring to the problem. And assumptions are very difficult things to validate. At the end of the day, philosophical meanderings, however, may be very cold comfort in the face of pain and suffering. For many, for most of us, the issue isn't theoretical, philosophical, or theological. It's deeply personal. Now, people may cry out in their pain, couching their questions in philosophical terms. They say things like, God, why did you allow this thing to happen? But the real concern isn't about theology and philosophy. And for somebody who's in pain, logical arguments won't necessarily satisfy them. In fact, it may well deeply offend them. It's the emotional problem, not primarily the logical problem of evil and suffering, that haunts our world. To speak to an actual sufferer in detached philosophical manner is cruel. And yet, the experience and the pain inevitably makes us ask the big questions about God and suffering. So we actually need to, to deal with both issues. The intellectual and the emotional level need serious consideration. 
So at the intellectual level, there aren't any knockdown arguments on either side of the debate. And people who claim to have one are dreaming, being simplistic, or are simply deceived. In the realm of theology, trying to justify God's existence and purpose in suffering has a particular name. It's called theodicy. It's the logical attempt to reconcile God's nature with the reality of evil in our world. Good theodicy doesn't claim to provide watertight solutions to the problem of suffering and evil. The language of solution really belongs more to the field of mathematics than it does to the fields of theology and philosophy. But what a good theodicy does is it provides us some perspectives to help us come to terms with pain and with suffering and evil. It may give us resources to engage with the questions, even if it doesn't provide definitive answers. Before we take time and look at the Christian perspectives on the problem, and there are more than one, I want to say that the presence of evil and suffering and pain, the presence of COVID-19 in our world, isn't just a Christian predicament. It's a human dilemma. The famous atheist Bertrand Russell once said, any decent religion must face the enormity of evil squarely. I would want to change Russell's words slightly and change the word religion to the word worldview. Every worldview, whether religious or not, must provide an explanation for the presence of suffering and evil in our world. And I would suggest to you that not every worldview does this equally well. When a skeptic asks you as a Christian, why or how do you Christians explain COVID-19 in the world? How do you explain the presence of evil and suffering? In, in that conversation, you have every right to ask and to respond, so how do you explain it? Because every worldview has something to say about the presence of suffering and evil in our world. What do the major worldviews say about evil and suffering? Well, let's briefly explore it. In Hinduism, suffering is balance. Hinduism essentially claims that in life, suffering is payback. Or perhaps less crudely, it's balance. It's what we call karma, the universal principle by which all past actions are balanced out by present events. It's the philosophy of just deserts. Hinduism does away with the problem of innocent suffering by doing away with the problem of innocence altogether. A tragedy is the appropriate reaping of evil actions in a past life or past reincarnation or perhaps in our most or more recent past. To see someone suffering and in pain is not the awful inversion of a good creator's intentions but is a divinely sanctioned re-establishing of balance. Now, what I want to say is not every individual Hindu wouldn't or couldn't be compassionate in the face of somebody else's suffering. Obviously, they can and do. But philosophically, that, how, that is how it's explained in, in Hinduism. When we come to Buddhism, suffering is illusion. As a philosophy, Buddhism actually developed as a direct response to suffering. Siddhartha Gautama, later known as the Buddha, the Enlightened One, once lived in a region uh, where India and Nepal border one another around the time of 500 BC. He lived a very sheltered and privileged life, mostly in a palace. When he was 29 years of age, he ventured into the world and was immediately struck by the human misery that he encountered. 
He returned to the palace and determined to devote the rest of his life to understanding suffering and evil. He left his wife and young child and embarked on a search for answers. After seven years of fruitless searching, living a rigorously aesthetic life, he determined to meditate day and night under a bow tree until he gained the insight that up till that point had eluded him. One night in the month of May, under a full moon, he claimed that his mind was emancipated and that the ignorance and the darkness were expelled and that light broke in on him. And the revelation that the Buddha had was that all pain, in fact all of life, is an illusion. The world of experience doesn't really exist. We think it does, but that's simply our mind playing tricks on us. Suffering is intimately related to our desire and affection for things in this world, things that are actually illusory. And that if we can remove the desire by seeing that they are illusions, then we will see the pain and the suffering that the desire for these illusions cause. So Buddha's noble pathway was designed to give us calmness of soul in which all desire, individuality and suffering are simply dissolved. Such enlightenment brings us emancipation from this illusory existence to the place of no desires and ultimately no pain, what, what Buddha called nirvana. Um, that reminds me of an amusing story I once heard about a famous Indian philosopher, a Buddhist philosopher called Shankara. He had just finished lecturing his king on the deception of the mind and its delusion regarding the material world. The next day, the king saw an elephant go on a rampage and he noticed how his tutor, his philosopher friend Shankara, ran away and climbed up a tree to get away from the elephant. When he came down from the tree, the king asked him why he'd run away if the elephant was only an illusion. Shankara, not to be outdone, said what the king saw was a non-real me climbing up a non-real tree. Well, one might be tempted to say that's a non-real answer. In Islam, suffering is fate. It's determined. The key concept in Islam is submission to the will of Allah. Islam states that every event in history is absolutely determined by Allah. The finger of Allah, they say, causes all things from the falling of a leaf to the trajectory of an asteroid. He is the cause of causes. And since Allah is beyond human comprehension, it's preposterous, presumptuous, even blasphemous to question his divine plan. So the classic Muslim response to tragedy is... Allah willed it. Suffering and evil becomes, for a Muslim, an opportunity for faithful submission to Allah's inscrutable will. It's a philosophy of fate. Well, then we have atheism, or naturalism, if you like, where suffering is inevitable. It's natural. You know, most Western atheists tend to mock these religious explanations of suffering and evil. However, their mockery does not exempt them from explaining the problem of evil and suffering in the world. So what explanatory power does atheism bring to the table? Now, before we look at their answer, I would want to ask whether atheism can even justify the question. You've possibly heard me talk about this before, but... At the risk of redundancy, let me explain. When an atheist assails you with the age-old question, how can you believe in a God with all of the evil and the injustice, all of the suffering that we see, all of the pain that is experienced in the world? 
Unbeknown to them, they are smuggling into that question an assumption which actually provides evidence for the very thing that they are trying to disprove. C.S. Lewis exposed this hidden assumption very well. As an atheist, he had rejected the Christian God because of all the cruelty and injustice he saw in the world. However, he came to realize that his objection was somewhat problematic. And he said this, My argument against God was that the universe seemed so cruel and so unjust. But how had I got this idea of just and unjust? What was I comparing the world to when I called it unjust? Lewis effectively pointed out that when we talk about evil, we tend to do it in negative terms. We talk about something that is unrighteous, unjust, unethical, ungodly, disobedient. And all of those prefixes are the negation of a positive root. The meaning of the word depends on a prior understanding of the positive root. To understand unrighteousness presupposes that we have an idea of what it means to be righteous. To describe something or someone as inhumane presupposes that we have an understanding of what it be means to be humane. To speak of a line being crooked assumes a straight line with which you are comparing it. And Lewis commented, the moment that you use the word better, you're assuming an infinite point of reference. A question about the existence of evil and injustice assumes a moral framework of some kind, an objective moral framework. And the very framing of the question ensnares the questioner. Moral law posits a moral law giver. Unless you have an infinite point, uh, an infinite reference point, moral authority is merely opinion. With, without God, that, in, without that infinite reference, every moral opinion, every moral framework is undone by the great leveling question, says who? Without an ability to say, says God, there is no moral authority, just likes and dislikes, opinions and ideas. So apart from the fact that atheists actually find it very difficult, virtually impossible to justify their question, nevertheless, what is their answer? Well, probably one of the most famous atheists of our time, Richard Dawkins, says in his book, River Out of Eden, in a universe of blind physical forces and genetic replication, some people are going to get hurt, other people are going to get lucky, and you won't find any rhyme or reason in it nor any justice. The universe we observe has precisely the properties we would expect if there is at the bottom line no design, no purpose, no evil, and no good. Nothing but blind, pitiful indifference. DNA neither knows nor cares. DNA just is, and we dance to its music. So the answer is suffering doesn't mean anything at all. It is neither bad nor good. Because all such categories are meaningless in a naturalistic world. It's nice, it's neat, it's logical, and I suggest completely unlivable. Tell a woman that's been raped that her attacker was simply dancing to his DNA. It wasn't evil, it just was. Hitler, Stalin, Mao, Pol Pot, and a thousand others were simply dancing to their DNA. The Holocaust wasn't evil, it just was. To be consistent, what does such a worldview mean for our judicial system or for law enforcement agencies? How can somebody be charged with a crime or incarcerated for it when they were simply dancing to their DNA? 
How can a person be held morally responsible, any more morally responsible for their behaviour than they are, say, for the colour of their eyes or the texture of their hair? A person can only be held responsible for their behaviour if they could have done otherwise. In a naturalistic, atheistic worldview, suffering is meaningless. And in my view, that's both wrong and impossible to achieve. You know, the desire to make suffering intelligible is one of the dignifying peculiarities of the human species, and it differentiates us from the animal world. Simply, without meaning, we die. So then, what is the biblical worldview with regard suffering and pain and evil? Now, because of time constraints, I, I, I think this will stretch out into maybe next week's message, but let me leave you here with a couple of thoughts. I think all of the worldviews that we have considered have a grain of truth within them. But the biblical worldview regarding suffering and pain and evil is multidimensional rather than based on simply one principle, be it balance, illusion, fate or inevitability. The biblical view, in my, my understanding or my view, is much more layered and much more nuanced and thereby much more coherent. Hinduism, as I said, claims that suffering is simply karma. It's the divine judgment or reaping what you sow. And, and actually, the Bible agrees with that in some cases. In some cases, that's exactly what's happening. Jesus said to the man that he cured of lameness uh, in John chapter 5, verse 14, Go and sin no more, lest a worse thing happen to you. Now, the clear implication of that is that in some way his condition was related to his sin. Interestingly enough, that's not always the case. It's not a fail-safe principle because, of course, the book of Job is, uh, is a book that explores the exact opposite tact. Here, we do, in fact, have an innocent sufferer in spite of the fact that his friends were trying to apply the principles of karma to his life. In Buddhism, suffering is related to misplaced desires. And the Bible claims that in some cases, suffering is the result of misplaced affections and desires. For example, in 1 Timothy chapter 6, uh, in verses 9 and following, Paul says this, People who want to be rich fall into all sorts of temptations and traps. They are caught by foolish and harmful desires that drag them down and destroy them. The love of money causes all kinds of trouble. Some people want money so much that they've given up their faith and caused themselves a lot of pain. So here we see suffering related to misplaced desires and affections. And to that degree, there's a grain of truth in Buddhism. Islam highlights submission to the will of God in the midst of suffering. The Bible, on the contrary, allows and facts encourages questioning, challenging, and even railing against evil and suffering. And yet, like Job, ultimately brings us to the place where we can say with him, though you slay me, yet will I trust you, or not my will, but thine be done. Atheism says in the famous words of Forrest Gump, stuff happens. And Jesus seemed to say something similar in Luke chapter 13, verses 1 through 5. A tower had fallen down and killed 18 people. And there were some people who were taking the Hindu line of argument, saying that they must have been especially wicked. Jesus said, and obviously I paraphrase, no, in a fallen world, stuff happens. 
I think next week, God willing, we will look at a much more detailed view or a more in-depth response as far as the Bible is concerned. Where is God in a coronavirus world? How does the Bible explain suffering and, and pain and evil? Let me leave you with a thought that is not so much related to the intellectual challenge of suffering as it is to the emotional challenge of its pain and its suffer- and suffering. The whole uh, idea of, a, of the word corona is related to, to our idea of a crown. A corona is a, is a crown. In the scripture, Jesus wore a corona of thorns on his head during his passion and suffering. What we find with the Christian God is not one who stands aloof. He is not the unmoved cause of causes. In fact, he is the deeply moved cause of existence. He does not stand aloof from our suffering. He is not unmoved by it. He enters into it. He rolls up his sleeves and gets bloodied by it. And he comes as a sufferer, as the man of sorrows, so that he can rescue us so that he can stand beside us, so that he can ultimately renew our world, so that there will be no more death and no more crying. Thanks so much for joining us today. In the following weeks, we will take the time to explore this in a little more depth. I hope you can join us. God bless you. Thanks for listening. We hope it was an encouragement to you. Again, Check out gatewaychurch.org.nz to find out what's going on within our church.